401k advisors want to build a scalable practice, but aren't always sure what to do next. Welcome to Outcomes, the podcast designed to help advisors think, make decisions, and cast a vision to create a business for the future. Here's your host, Ross Marino, financial planner, author, speaker, and CEO of Advisor2x. Welcome to Outcomes, the podcast. Today, we are joined by Aaron Potashin with Alliant Retirement Consulting. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ross. Good to be here. We're going to discuss managed accounts today. We're also going to discuss how you explain your value. You have a great way of explaining what you bring to clients and prospects. But before we dive into that, last time we spoke, you made a statement that stuck with me. And you said, I don't like RFPs. How about we start with that? Why don't you like RFPs? Yeah, let's talk about that. The reason I don't like RFPs is not for the work that we have to put in to get it done, but because it's the value that the end consumer is getting out of it. And I think it's because, you know, if we talk about the end consumer, whether this is a company, nonprofit, governmental agency, that's kind of the buying process that a lot of these companies believe is what they should go through to determine who's the right vendor, advisor, whatever is right for them. But the problem is an RFP, number one, a lot of people should know is a lot of the answers that are used in there are boilerplate answers, number one, because they're asking a lot of mundane kind of questions that everyone has the same answers for, you know, the size of your firm, yada, 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 right? And a lot of an RFP is a beauty contest and everyone's putting on their Sunday best to show and impress everybody about how good I am, right? Or how good our firm is. And in a buying process, it's not always about how good you are. It's how good you are for that company and their specific situation or organization, right? And so, and in our industry, what we're ultimately selling is intellectual capital. We have no widgets. We have no, you know, we're not like Elon Musk selling cars here, right? We have intellectual capital and for that to be captured in an RFP where we're answering standardized questions that are only about us is not beneficial to the end consumer. I think a much better process would be something that we've developed. We call it results first. And it's all about the client. And it's reversing the value proposition before somebody's hired. In an RFP, I believe that the value is 5149 to the advisor. Here's how good I am. Here's how great what we do. Here's how we're going to improve your situation. But not talking specifically about them. And so I think RFPs for that reason are not as valuable uh, as a process to go through. There's a ton of work and time that is eaten up by both sides on these things because they're not short, right? You and I have both completed RFPs. These could be 30, 40, 50 pages of questions we're answering. And then on the other side, somebody has to go through and read all those questions. And a lot of the answers end up sounding the exact same. And I think there's a much better way to go about companies finding who is the right fit for them. And it has to do with going through a whole different process and flipping the value proposition where we're showing off our intellectual capital for their specific process. So I think there's a different way to go about it. So you receive an RFP request and you know that the boiler plate response isn't going to be enough. Would you share maybe your secret sauce or maybe in general of 
how you reach out to that company and how you go beyond the RFP? Are you able to connect with them up front or do you have to follow the process and then hope to show results later? What do you do? So I will tell you, it depends, right? In an ideal situation, what we would do is be able to engage with this company that says, all right, yeah, we'd love to talk to you about your services, but we want you to complete the RFP just like everybody else. And I do understand that there's some circumstances where they don't have the ability to not do an RFP namely governmental and government agencies, they have a mandate in law typically where they have to do an RFP. That doesn't mean that they can't do something in addition to the RFP, right? And this is where we've not pushed back, but you know, said, hey, what about the RFP plus this? And in our process that we do, it's all about results in advance. Now, I'm not talking about investment results, number one, just to make our compliance departments happy. Not talking about investment oriented results. We're talking about actual results. If I was sitting in the chair as your advisor, what would I have recommended? And from a plan design design standpoint, maybe from an education strategy standpoint, what are the levers that I would have recommended you pull that could have better helped get the result that you wanted to for your particular company? So there's some companies where they want full participation, max enrollment, and they want to plow as much money into the retirement plan as they want. And we love those companies. There's some companies that want to advocate for the 401k, but don't necessarily want full participation because it would break the bank financially. And that's just the way it is. And that's okay too. But an RFP doesn't answer the questions that that buying person needs to know to tell them, hey, the result I'm getting is this, but your answers in the RFP very rarely will specifically say how that would have impacted those decisions, in my opinion. So that's why I think there's a better process. And it's all about giving results in advance. Essentially, what, I, what the process results is, if I'm your advisor looking backwards, what would have I recommended and when? And then how would that have impacted your participants? So that's what I think is. And that decision you know, impacts all of us. There's other buying processes that do this, right? The technology sector, when they're selling software, they'll come in and do actual demos. They'll put in, you know, demo, you know, just dummy information about censuses and be able to show somebody, if you go through an open enrollment with our payroll process, here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks and feels like, right? You get to get a, a, an idea of what that looks like. Now we're not selling a payroll or software process, but they're demonstrating results in advance. Our industry could be much better at that. We have done that and been able to show against great competition, how we can enhance the value that we're giving to somebody. And that's what it's all about. It's making sure that the value proposition is reversed where the buying person is getting over 51% of the value and we're on the other side. Because anytime it's inverted, it's not a good, it's not a good relationship. And that's not, just, that's not just in business, that's in life, right? So, I mean, if you're getting more out of the marriage than your wife, she's not gonna be happy for that for very long, right? Um, and so that's why I think it's just so key because ultimately we're selling intellectual capital and whoever provides the most value will win ultimately. And we've seen that again and again. Do you think the age of big data is now allowing you to be much more specific and customized when a company approaches you for an RFP? We're doing that now, I would tell you. We're using data in a way to tell a story, right? And data, you know, what is it? The data is the new oil, right? I mean, the largest companies in the world are those that are built on data, right? You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, the largest companies were those that pumped stuff up from the world 
And now the largest companies in the world are those that uses ones and zeros. There's no reason why we can't start using more data to help inform our clients on things that are going on in their 401k without them really understanding it. We're doing a lot of things with regards to taking data on benefits enrollment information as well as 401k enrollment information and being able to highlight for our clients, hey, we're seeing that this person, for instance, is on a family high deductible health plan, which means they have an HSA they can contribute to. Um, and they're not contributing to their HSA to max it out, but they're on track to over contribute to their 401k. It seems like we should let this person know that, hey, you might not have any money in your HSA, and, but you'll have more than enough by September to max out your 401k, you should probably readjust those contributions because the likelihood of one of your kids going, having an accident and you unloading that entire HSA and hitting your deductible is really high, right? That's an idea of like how we're using data right now. And that's more beneficial for the client and for the end user, the employee of the company as well. So that, that's again, why you can, how you can use data to make a difference in employee and a company's life. I'm wondering how the current environment, which is Zoom, lack of face-to-face, -face, is going to play into more usage of data. Many advisors have built great practices on their personality, on charisma, on just being around people and forming that connection. That's a little harder to do right now, especially by video. So not right. only will it limit prospecting opportunities, but maintaining that relationship. Do you think that's now an open door for the intellectual capital that's built more on data than just personality? Absolutely. If you have to strip away the personalities and then just look at the hard data that somebody's providing on how they're going to make a difference for you, it makes so much more of a difference. It's so much more valuable to be able to do. Those that I think are in our field that are not using a data approach to show how they can impact their employees, I don't think that they're going to be able to be as competitive in the longer run, I would say. So I think it's hugely impactful. The fact that people can't use their personalities to sell, to you know, overcome any type of objectives, uh, objections people might have on them or their service or whatever, or to maintain business, because we know that that happens a lot of times. People will maintain working with somebody that we know is not doing as good a job of them just because there's a professional relationship there, right? So we don't want to discount those, but we also know it's much harder to do right now. Are you using a lot of managed accounts? And what do you think about that going forward? Um, we are starting to see a little bit of an uptick by the participants using managed accounts. Um, I would say we're kind of neutral on them right now. So I, I'm not that I'm not against them. We're not hugely favorable of them either. We're dead center on them for right now. Um, I do think that they will start to increase in utilization by participants. Now there's a difference between being increased in by use of participants and then being popular, right? So I think they'll start to be used more by participants because what we're seeing is the record keepers are starting to push this a little bit more as well. And whenever you see this giant push from record keepers, we saw this with target date funds, right? Without the, the record keepers really becoming huge proponents of target date funds, probably because it was in their interest for, as a company to use these, whether it was proprietary target date funds or partnerships they had with the target date fund family, they'll start to get more utilization just because it's another revenue stream, uh, you know, number one for, for record keepers, right? But number two, I don't want to discount this, but there's been some studies that have shown that participants that are in managed accounts do a pretty good job as well. 
Now it's kind of not consistent, right? Um, so like JP Morgan did a study a couple of years ago looking at target date fund managers, managed accounts and those that did it themselves and, you know, make what you will of that, but they will start to become a bigger part of the conversation. I think for those that are closer to the retirement age, the disparity on how those people need to be invested is greater than those that are younger, in my opinion. So I could have a 50 year old that probably should be invested pretty conservatively because maybe they've made a lot of money or they're super risk tolerant, is, is they're very low risk tolerant. But you could also have another 50 year old that just wants to go super aggressive and maybe they don't have as much money and they plan on working for as long as possible and their health and their health history says that they'll be able to work for a long time, right? Um, well, a target date fund that's maybe a medium risk glide path is not good for either of those people then, right? So if you compare that to a 25 year old, whether they're making $100,000 a year or $25,000 a year, both of them probably just need to be pretty aggressive, right? So it's for those that are later on in their age where the disparity is much greater, I believe, and where I think the managed accounts will probably be more use and a better value for those people, to use that word, than it will for those that are lower in age. I think that will. So I think that it will depend on one, record keepers pushing it. Number two will be <clears throat> we're starting to see where advisors are getting involved in the managed accounts. I think next year we're going to see a big explosion in this, actually, uh, with a few different managed account providers kind of handing the keys to the managed accounts to the advisors and them kind of controlling it in a sense. That will also be a big component of how popular and the utilization goes with that. Because as we know, the workplace is the number one place where people go to save for retirement. It's also the number one place besides family and friends that they get financial education. And people are desperate to work with a financial advisor. We see the stats everywhere, right? but they don't know who to work with. There's a million people out there, they go online, they don't know who to trust. And generally, if their employer has decided we'll hire this company, that's a transfer of trust to those employees to maybe work with that person as well. So for advisors going forward, I think they'll look at using a managed account to work with individuals. And then as that individual transitions to retirement, They've already established a relationship via this managed account, and then that will transfer over to an IRA rollover. That's how I think it will transition over. I think 2021 will be the year we start to see that. And when we get to 2022, as long as we're all still here, um, and the apocalypse hasn't happened yet, I think it will just escalate in popularity. And it will be interesting to see, as we've seen right now, it's like 25 cents out of every dollar that goes into a 401k ends up at a, a target date fund what will that look like in five years from now? Will it be 25 cents goes into a managed account? It'll be interesting to see. You actually answered my follow-up question. I'm on the same page that as you approach retirement, what is suitable may be a middle of the road target date fund, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's appropriate because people are different. On paper, it's suitable, but that's different than what is in your best interest. And there's going to be a broader range of what is in someone's best interest compared to maybe somebody who's 30 years away from retirement. And for the most part, they can be more aggressive. And I think that's an opportunity for managed accounts. And I was going to ask you, do you think that's an opportunity? And that's exactly what you said. So I, I'm with you there as well. I think it allows us instead of the to retirement, but through retirement, let's move to the next topic. 
fee compression. It's going on. Good thing or bad thing? What do you think? I think it's good for those that have been overcompensating for the value they've been providing. We have come across, as I'm sure you have, and a lot of the people that will listen to this podcast, you'll see people where they're getting paid ungodly amounts of money for being a retirement plan advisor, and they're doing nothing really related to being a retirement plan advisor. We had one company we had potentially working with, the compensation the advisor was getting was, I, I kid you not, four times the benchmark average, which was absolutely insane. And they were actually making, and this was a company of around 600 employees, very generous benefits package. And they were actually making more than the employee benefits per uh, advisor, in which they were spending millions of dollars a year. So it was absolutely mind boggling. And they still said, well, we really like them. Okay. It's your, <laughs> it's your, your choice. So again, it goes back to, you know, I don't think that we're a commodity in what we do. And commodities get compressed from a, a, a fee standpoint, right? We're paying less today for, you know, the iPhone that we all have in our pocket has more computing power than when the, you know, they put the man on the moon. And that, man, and that computer then probably costs millions of dollars and this costs, you know, thousand bucks or whatever it is, right? So, but what we do, I don't think is a commodity. So I think it's all in what you do. So I think as long as you're continuing to provide value and can document how you've impacted your client, I think there's going to be the opportunity to stop that fee compression. And the fee compression happens when people who don't know what they're doing are trying to get business and they'll underbid it, right? This happens in every industry, right? Um, so I think it, it's going to continue to happen because people are going to want to be involved in this business because it's a fantastic business and you, there's so many positives from a, just being able to impact people's lives, right? But people also see dollar signs and there's always going to be somebody willing to work for less, but they won't do as much. And so I think that's the part where being able to communicate your value, going back to what we were talking about in the beginning is more important than ever. And those that can't communicate the value and deliver on it should be making less, I think. So we'll see what happens there. I agree with you. How about a shout out? Let's talk about vendors, companies, or someone outside of your company that you think is doing good work. I know we want to keep this short, but I will. But the first shout I have to do is to my wife. She's, you know, Warren Buffett has a saying, like the most important investment you'll make is your spouse. And in that context, I'm the Warren Buffett of investing then. Um, so she's phenomenal. Um, I think few other people, Clint, Drew, and Jonathan. And then the last one I want in, I'm doing this shout out mostly because I want this person to have more awareness, especially within our industry is Tyrone Ross. Uh, go follow him on Twitter. Tyrone, I think is one of those people where when you get a chance to be around him, you're inspired. And I think the impact that he's going to make in our industry and then on the kids that he wants to impact as well will be felt for a very, very long time. So making sure more people are aware of him, inspired by him, I think is super important. Trying to get Tyrone on the calendar right now. So I've already spoken with him. Yeah, he's a great guy. Love what he's doing. And uh, I, I don't know if I could say over the last 30 years that I've been an advisor that the time isn't better for Tyrone Ross and for people who move beyond people that look like you and me. Absolutely. So let's do the final question. I think you know what it is. 
Yeah. Here it is. It is the magic wand for those of you just listening. It's a Disney certified magic wand. If you could change one thing in the world, Aaron, what would you change? So if I could change one thing in the world, what I would do is move my magic wand, or maybe I'd use the, uh, the Thanos, you know, the glove, right? Uh, <laughs> nice. And, and I'd use the snap. So I'll say the snap because I got boys and they're Avengers fans. I would say is I'd want the ability to change where people concentrate on the things they can control and not on the things they can't control. We're days away from the election and there are people that are obsessed about this. But here's the thing. You can only vote once unless you live in Illinois or Chicago, but <laughs> you can only vote once. <laughs> and so one, after that, you can only advocate for your particular side or party and but nobody's ever influenced any voting by staying on Facebook for eight hours a day. And people spend so much time on the things they can't control and very little on the things they can control. And this is related to what you and I do every day, right? People are obsessed with the movements in the stock market, but give very little attention to, are we budgeting, right? right. And if you can focus more on the things you can control, your emotions, your budget, your relationships with your family, and less on, well, uh, should I do this or that on the stock market or it went up and down today, you'll have a much better life. And uh, we probably have a lot less people that are angry. Uh, so that's what I would do. I agree. In my daily planner, I use something called the Panda Planner and it has an affirmation and I have to come up with a new one every day. Today I wrote, nothing influences tomorrow more than the actions I do today. Yep. And that's what you're talking about. Control what I can, do things that make a difference. Tomorrow is going to be a lot better if we do that. That's exactly right. That's it, man. So Great way to close. Aaron, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ross. Appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for listening to Outcomes. Subscribe now to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Advisor 2X. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.